Well, I'm relatively sure that I cannot convey this truth any better than the songs that we have sung this morning do. Killing Christmas Love. What a weird title. Christmas is the season of love. It's, it's not an accident that the Hallmark Channel's formulaic Christmas romance movies are immensely popular. <laughs> the formula works, doesn't it? It catches people's attention. People are drawn to it. And while some folks boo and, and may be critical of those things, it's the predictability that draws people in. Because the predictability draws our attention to what we long for. A connection, a love, an intimacy. We see this so often at Christmas. Maybe it's the lights, maybe it's the nostalgia, but there's something about this season that brings out the romantic in many people. Some of us even have weddings and wedding anniversaries around this time. In fact, uh, my in-laws were married on the 23rd. My wife and I were married on New Year's Eve. And my daughter and my soon-to-be son-in-law are being married on January 2nd. This time of year seems to bring about passionate emotions. It brings out romance. But not just that. Compassionate love also tends to be on the rise at this time as generosity tends to uh, have a holiday bump. Salvation Army bell ringers, they're kind of a staple. See, right there. <laughs> Toys for Tots drives. People looking to, to give to the needy that they might have neglected all year long. But at Christmas time, something about it just, it just feels right. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but Christmas tends to make all of us feel a bit sentimental. Some of you get warm feelings inside as soon as I mention Perry Como singing I'll Be Home for Christmas or Bing Crosby singing White Christmas or you think of gathering for a, a, a holiday meal and singing Christmas carols. Even the gift giving, as crazy and even commercial as it can become, Yes, I did hear Charlie Brown in my head as I said that. All of those things bring about these, these feelings, these emotions that take us someplace. We long for it. We want it. And yet, at the same time, it can be a hard time of year. Why is it that loneliness and depression and despair and suicides also spike during this holiday season? We long for love. We so often, though, end up disappointed, and heartbroken, wondering what went wrong with us, with others, with the world. What went wrong? Maybe the love we really need is more than mere sentimentality. Maybe it's more than playing the, the Yule log burning on your YouTube loop. Maybe it's more than that family tradition of decorating cookies or truffle day or whatever it is that there's nothing wrong with truffle day i'll just tell you that right now but maybe there's more 
Even the Grinch's heart grew two sizes that day when he realized that there had to be something more. This idea of Christmas sentimentality, of Christmas love, unfortunately, far too often leaves us lacking. After all the enjoyment, after all of the beauty and the power and the nostalgia, then comes the aftermath. And it's kind of a letdown to a certain extent. It's over. And now there's nothing left but the cleanup. And sometimes our hearts can feel empty in those moments. Today we want to focus on ultimate love, the reality of love. And our core reality today is this. The real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death. Let me say that again. It's reflected in the, in the hymns that we sang as, as we learned content through these songs we sang together, as we heard that, that more modern down-here song that, that is so powerfully depicting the love of God that sacrifices for a wretched sinner like me. The real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death. What wondrous love is this? This love divine, all loves excelling. This is the real love of Christmas. Now as we looked at Matthew uh, chapter 1 a few moments ago, we saw Joseph making the choice to love even in a very difficult time. But what we saw even beyond that, the bigger picture that began with the genealogies, working through the unfolding of history, is God's love for His creation. His love for us, rebellious people that we are. God's love is the foundation of all other loves. It's the foundation literally, of everything. God had no need, no external compulsion to create anything. Who's going to compel God? In the beginning, it was just God. And He created so that He could express His love, His relational nature. He didn't have to. It was for His own good pleasure. That's why everything was created. That's why you and I exist, for God's pleasure, for a relationship with Him. And yet, that love that we were made for, that we were meant for, that our hearts cry out for, has been perverted. Notice this, we were made for perfect intimacy with God. We were made for perfect intimacy with God. We see this in John 1.3, Colossians 1.16, Revelation 4.11. God created all things for His pleasure. When God created humanity in Genesis 1, at the very end of the chapter, and in Genesis 2 as He lays it out for us, the picture here is a perfect intimacy. Turn, if you would, to Genesis 1. You'll be able to see this. 
Our point will come in Genesis 2, but we want to start with Genesis 1 to get there. If you're not sure where Genesis is, Genesis means beginning, so guess where you might find it? Anything else would be really confusing. Genesis 1, we're going to start with verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, I'd love to develop this more, but we don't have time because we have other points to get to. But God created us, humanity, mankind, uniquely in His image. Everything was created as a reflection of Him. It derives from His being. In in other words, it derives from His image. But only humanity uniquely bears His likeness. That's expressed in the fact that He created us to rule as as a reflection of His own rule. Verse 27, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Our gender, our sex, is God's choice. His intention for us, built into the created order. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. His very first command after creating humanity was for us to be relational and to involve ourselves in His, if you will, holy estate of matrimony, to then involve marriage, sexuality, and family in the multiplication of our human race. And then to establish His kingdom rule over His creation. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made. And it was very good. Up until this time, he had described each phase of creation as good. Now it's very good. For he has created in his image the pinnacle of creation. There is now a relational being like God. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it He rested from all the work of creating He had done. Now, jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 18. 
You recall that he said everything is very good. He created all these things and it's good. But there's one thing he points out here is not. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Now he's not alone. He's got all kinds of creatures all around him. And yet he's still very alone. Because there isn't a like person. There isn't someone else with him who bears God's image. It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, notice the relationship here. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. There is a connection between the man and the woman of a like image, of a like spirit, in a reflection of God's creating humanity in like image, in like spirit. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Our point comes to a head in verse 25. In case you thought this was a throwaway verse, this is actually the point. We were made for perfect intimacy with God. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There's nothing between them that would cause them to hide, to cover up, to be guilty, to be embarrassed. More importantly, there is nothing between them and their Father God, their Creator, to cause shame or guilt. Nothing to hide. Nothing to run away from. No reason to guard yourself. We are created for perfect intimacy with God. Second, notice this. Sin severed our connection with the source of love. Sin severed our connection with the source of love. In the very next chapter, Genesis 3, we see sin enter the equation. And everything falls apart. You know the story. Every choice they could possibly make is good except for one. Guess which choice they make? Kind of like me. I do the same thing. I can identify with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I, I know what I should do, and I don't do it. And I'm fully aware of what I should not do. That's what I do. And I know it. And I don't want it. My inner person longs to be conformed to the likeness and the will of God. His will is my will. That's what I want. And yet, ugh, in my flesh, I keep on doing the wrong thing and failing to do the right thing. Maybe you can identify with that too. It starts here. It starts in Genesis 3. Having had perfect intimacy with God, nothing between them, an interloper comes in, a competing voice, and they listen to this voice that undermines the authority of the Word of God. And they believe it. They believe the lie. It sounds good. It doesn't sound like a lie. How many lies really do? 
lies by their very nature sound like truth. Otherwise, they'd be pretty ineffective lies. And they listen to the voice of the interloper. And sin cuts them off from God. He says, now, because of this, you can't live in this garden with me anymore. And as soon as they sin, they become aware of their nakedness. Now, they were already, they weren't dumb. Don't, don't be confused. They knew they didn't have any clothes on. But that wasn't the point. I would contend that they may have even at times perhaps chosen to wear clothes, not because of covering up for modesty. It wasn't necessary. But maybe there was a chilly breeze. I don't know. Because the point in Genesis 1.25 is relational. In fact, the connotation of the Hebrew is that they were naked unto one another. They were naked unto one another. There's a relational unguardedness until sin. And the first thing that happens when they sin is they hide and cover up. The intimacy is gone. It's corrupted. It's perverted. And when God, their creator, their father, with whom they had this perfect relationship comes to them not only are they separated from him but the sin makes their brains not work right sin darkens our intellect so we can't see what we think we see because what we see we see wrongly they forgot that god is god and knows everything so i'm going to hide over here behind this bush and put on some fig leaves that'll work And God comes to them. And I'm, I'm getting way off here, but trust me, this is exactly the point of what we're going for today. It's just not in my script. And God, in the end of this, after announcing to them the curse, that death has now entered the system, that they have been severed from the connection that they had with the very source of love itself, God the Creator, who is love. God then reaches into the system and makes for them coverings. It requires the death of some animals and He makes them skin coverings. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. They could not cover themselves no matter how much they tried, but God stepped in and He covered them. Even though they were separated from Him, God's active love, His faithful love, it stretches to the skies. Sin severed our connection with the source of love. Let me press on. Human conceptions of love are impure, insufficient, and impermanent. I was very excited to be able to say impermanent. Human conceptions of love are impure, insufficient, and impermanent. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't comprehend in any way pure love, that we never see uh, good pictures of love. We still have these echoes of Eden that remain here. 
We still bear His image, however distorted it may be. So God's common grace to us allows even unbelievers to see glimpses of God-like love. You can be married for a lifetime in a satisfying, fulfilling marriage as an atheist. But we'd be intellectually dishonest to deny that. Because many of us know people who have never darkened a church doorstep. They don't rely on God to carry them, but yet they have a good and lasting marriage, better than some folks in churches. That's God's common grace. But understand, you can never have the best marriage without being centered on Christ. Because God has a purpose and intent for marriage that only in Christ can be found and reflected. Pressing on, the human conceptions of love are first impure, next insufficient, and then impermanent. Let's look at this impurity idea first. Even our best motives tend to be self-focused. I love you because you make me feel good, right? We say things like, oh, I love you so much for that. You know, that's why I love you. Well, why? <laughs> I love you because I really like what you do for me. You look good, girl. You know, that kind of thing. There are various different kinds of love, but all of these human loves end up coming to that place of a tainted motive. Somehow it comes back to me. I love you because you're my child. You belong to me. You're part of my team. You're, you're in here. We share this this connectedness, right? And that in itself taints our love. It doesn't mean that all of these things are bad. It just means that it's not the love that had that perfect intimacy in the garden. Even our best motives tend to be self-focused. If you belong to me and my group, great, we have love. But if you're outside of that, if you're my enemy, well then no. That was what the, what the ancient Hebrews believed. You should love your friends fiercely. Your allies should be kept close. But your enemies, they should be hated. That's where hate belongs. It's for your enemies. That's not the love of God. That's the love of humanity. Next we see that human conceptions of love are insufficient. We often chase after passions and relationships to complete us, right? You complete me. And, and we want this, this love, this sentimental, good-feeling love to fix the gaps, to fill in my cracks, to spackle my life, if you will. We're looking for something to fill some gap in our hearts, but they inevitably fall short. The ultimate disconnect from God's love is a hole that lesser loves cannot fill. We were severed from the ultimate source of love in the garden. And our hearts still long for that perfect intimacy for which we were created. All these other imitations or partial loves are insufficient to carry that kind of weight. Don't put that on your mate. Don't put that on your child. If your child is the source of your fulfillment, first off, you're making them an idol, which means you're putting them against God. That never goes well for the idol. If you love your child, don't put them in that position. 
But if you're asking your child, not overtly, but in your own mind and heart, if you're expecting your child to fulfill you, you're asking them to do what only God can do. And you will both end up frustrated and brokenhearted. Human love tends to be insufficient. Third, we see that human conceptions of love are impermanent. Impermanent. I wasn't. I really wasn't just trying to get impermanent into the sermon, but I was pretty happy about it. What does it mean when we say impermanent? It means they don't last, right? While, while we have an infinite need for love that's put into us by our infinite Father God, sin has made our world and the experience of love in our world finite. What once was infinite... That's how we were designed. Perfect intimacy with God, no limitations. That's how it was intended. That's how it was designed. That was the experience before sin entered. But when sin entered, all of a sudden, all of those good things became limited. All of the things that were fulfillment in God were now a lack of fulfillment. They were now insufficient. And so we chase after them and we try to find that fulfillment But it ultimately doesn't last. We've become accustomed to limited loves, relationships that end. People who promise to stay but leave when it gets tough. Falling in and out of love, wanting something more, building hopes and dreams on a foundation that often crumbles. I think we're making it worse. I think in our world, as we strive more and more to try to develop a love that looks like the God love we need, but without God, we're actually making it worse. Just a little side note. This is free. No charge for this at all. But This is why the entire concept of dating in our, in our culture It's kind of messed up. We date as a sport almost. We, you know, we we do these things as if we're this coupling that's designed for marriage ends up being something we do as recreation. And it destroys everything that God intends. Even apart from sexual immorality, when we start dating as 12-year-olds or, you know, whatever is common now, and we date through high school. How many of you were able to get married when you were in high school? Raise your hand, anybody? Come on, man. What we're doing is we're setting up habits, patterns of breakup. We are teaching ourselves that it's normal for relationships to commit and uncommit and commit and uncommit and commit and uncommit. And we do it over and over again so that it's no longer surprising It shouldn't be surprising when we get into marriages or jobs or contracts and we commit and we uncommit. We kind of foster that. Maybe we should rethink how we go about it. That's for another time, just throwing it in for free. Understand that the kind of love we're used to, even at Christmas, falls short of the kind of love that we need. We need something better, something deeper, something Real, if you will. 
The real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death. As we've talked about this idea of love being perverted, let's walk into love perfected. If the real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death, we should understand that history... All of history is the unfolding story of God loving and redeeming the world He created. Let that sink in. Some of you are saying, no, it's not. Ride with me. All of history. And when I say all of history, I mean even that which is yet unwritten. Everything from the beginning to the end. And all things in between. Everything from Genesis to Revelation and what you are experiencing right now in the middle of those things is the unfolding story of God's relationship to His people. And God's relationship to His people is one of love and redemption. He created us for a perfect intimacy with Him. We did our thing and severed that tie. And we are forever separated from God by sin and we can't fix it. We can't religion our way to God. We can't morality our way to God. We can't work our way with strong efforts and goodwill and and doing good deeds and writing checks to the poor and all these different things. None of that can take away the stain of sin that has perverted us at our core. But God does. And from Genesis 4 on, we see God working to intervene. Even in in Genesis 3, as we talked about, we see God working to intervene. Everything that He's doing is moving us toward a point. And that point reaches its apex in Jesus Christ. The Son of God, eternally existent, who then puts on flesh as God sends His Son to become one of us, Emmanuel, God with us, for the intention of saving us, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. And it's not just salvation. I think that's a significant thing. He didn't just name Jesus salvation. He named Him God saves. That's the picture of Israel. As He says over and over to His people, I didn't choose you because you were great. Heck no, you stink. I chose you because I am great. I am God. It is in my nature. I chose you because I chose you. I am sovereign. And though you are unfaithful, I remain faithful. The Psalms of praise to God over and over again, regardless of their individual topics, point back to God's faithfulness crying out to God for help because He's faithful, crying out to God for mercy because He's faithful. Even though I'm not, He is God's enduring love. As Dennis read for us earlier in Psalm 36, your your love, God, it's beyond everything that I'm used to seeing. It reaches to the heaven, it stretches to the sky. You're Your righteousness, your justice, it's far and wide and powerful. It's bigger than I ever imagined. This is a, a reality that's woven throughout history. 
Man sins, God intervenes to save us. Jesus Christ is the demonstration of God's love as he sent his son into the world to save sinners. This is reality. History is the unfolding story of God loving and redeeming the world he created. Notice that love begins and ends with God. Love begins and ends with God. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll be back here a little later toward the end, but I just want you to see some things. It's way toward the back where the books get real skinny. If you find Revelation as the last book, you can start thumbing toward the left a little bit. Don't go too far or you'll go past it. 1 John Chapter 4, love begins and ends with God. Notice that He is the source and the completion of love. 1 John 4, specifically verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another. Now you've heard that before, right? We talk about that. Let us love one another. For love comes from... Where's love come from? What's it say? You all got it in front of you. What's it say? Are you sure? Because it didn't sound convincing. Where does love come from? He is the source of love. Love one another. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, it's important to recognize that the love talking about, that he's talking about here is a specific Greek word. This is the agape love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and elsewhere. There are lots of loves, so don't be confused. Lots of people love lots of things. I love all sorts of things. I love pizza. I love my dog. I love the Chicago Bears, some days more than others. I, I, you know, I, I, I love you all. I love my wife. I love my daughter. There are lots of different loves, but agape love, love by choice, by character, comes from God. Notice because God is love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Whoever does not agapeo or agapao does not know God because God is agape. This love comes from God. We need to recognize it begins and ends with Him. The great command of Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is an affectionate love. This is a choice to love, but it's a feeling, an affection, a valuing, a treasuring. Love the Lord your God. It has to be a choice or He wouldn't be commanding it, right? So it's more than warm fuzzies, but it involves the choice to value and honor Him. So if that's the highest command, if that's the number one biggest thing that we have to do, the second part, which Jesus said is like it, is the expression of the first. If we love God with everything we have, ahead of everything else, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that shows by loving others the same way we would love ourselves. That doesn't mean, you know, that you know, self-love in the arrogant sort of way. But when I'm hungry, I eat. I eat a lot. 
When I'm cold, I put on a coat or a blanket, or I turn the heat up. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Somebody has a need, we meet the need. We look to do what is best for them. That's an expression of the love of God. Love begins and ends with God. Notice this. This this is the pinnacle of love. This is why that How Many Kings song that we sang a little while ago breaks me every time. Because this is love. God demonstrated His redeeming love by sending His beloved Son to pay for the crimes of His enemies. And in case you're not sure who His enemies were, look in the mirror. When I look for God's enemy, I don't have to look any farther than that. Except for God looking upon me while I was still a wretched sinner, not even looking for Him, but only trying to shape Him in my own image so God would fit into my box so I could get His blessings but not have to actually be subject to His rule. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He did so so that according to John 1.12, those who receive Him, as many as receive Christ, who accept by faith the grace that is offered, they have the right to become His children instead of His enemies. How many kings do that? Adopt their enemies. He sent His only begotten Son God put on flesh because we were in rebellion against Him. And so for His own glory and our ultimate good, He stepped into time, He stepped into matter, and He put on a human form, and He encountered temptation just the same as you and I, and yet was without sin. My mind can't even take that in. And then the one who knew no sin became sin for me, for you, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is love. Still in John, 1 John, that is, chapter 4. Our memory verse for today is verse 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This, verse 10, is love. Not that we loved God. Ditch that. Get that garbage out of your mind. That garbage that says that, that somehow I chose God, I found Jesus. That, that's foolishness. That's, love is that He found you. That He reached into you and gave you a new heart so that you were able to see truth you couldn't see before. Because your sinful heart, just like my sinful heart, doesn't submit to God. It can't. We're hostile to God. So when He takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and allows us to see what we couldn't see and quickens us, gives us life by His Spirit, our entire desire changes. Now I want the God I used to be hiding from. I want the God I used to try to change. 
It's no longer about what I want. It's about what He wants. This is love. Not that we love God. What pathetic kind of love is that? I vacillate every day. And I'm a pastor standing up in front of you trying to tell you about the truth of God's Word and I struggle with sin every dead gum day. Don't email me about saying dead gum. But He... He loves us. Do you get it? Do you understand? This is what Christmas is about. That He loves us so much that He sent His only begotten Son, His one-of-a-kind only Son, so that you and I, by believing in Him, wretched sinners that we are, might not perish to be eternally separated from God, but to have eternal life. That's love. That's Christmas love. Now I can't see. (laughs) History is the unfolding story of God loving and redeeming the world He created. Love begins and ends with God. God demonstrated His redeeming love by sending His beloved Son to pay for the crimes of His enemies. The real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death. Now, what do we do about that? If this is is so, well, then what? Let's talk about love reflected. In fact, as we talk about this, let's read that 1 John passage. I say that, of course, right after I close my Bible. Let's see what John the Beloved says here, starting with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might, have, that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice. Your translation, if you have a good one, might say propitiation. It means the appeasing of God's righteous wrath through a sacrifice. Jesus took our place. This sacrifice of atonement, you can see that word atonement and think of it as at-one-ment, to make us one with God, to pay the penalty, to pay everything that is due, He became our substitute. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to this. They gave a picture of that kind of substitution. He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5, By His stripes we are healed. Dear friends, verse 11, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
Since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. In other words, that's how you see God. How does the world see God? When we love one another, when we reflect the love that is God, the agape love, not just the, hey, you're on my team, I like you. You got a real life t-shirt, awesome, that's great. We're on the same team, so great, we, we got this love. No, no, no. When you get on my nerves, can we be honest, we all get on each other's nerves sometimes. If not, you probably don't have that close a relationship. Because the people you fight with most are the people in your own house. That is when love shows up. In real life, with real people, with real struggles, with real conflict. And the world sees God when we love like Him. When we reflect that. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us verse 13 this is how we know that we live in him and he in us he's given us of his spirit now this is important for us to recognize we'll see in just a moment it's his spirit in us that produces this love we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world hallelujah amen this is christmas the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. You're not saved by your love for God. You are saved by God's love for you. Maybe you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace What's grace? Unmerited favor. Unreciprocated love. Love undeserved. It's by grace you're saved. Through faith. Through devotion? No, that comes later. Through good deeds? Absolutely not. That comes later. You're His workmanship. Through faith. Trusting in His character over your own character. Lord, I, I, I must not be saved. I don't feel it. I keep failing you. I must not be a Christian. That's putting the focus on you. The focus is Him. Your sin, <laughs> your sin, in itself wretched, but, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Your, your sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross. And we bear that sin no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This is Christmas love. It's all about Him. Entirely, completely about Him. He's given us His Spirit. If we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, He lives in us, and we live in Him. And therefore, we reflect His love, so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 17, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Notice this. In this world, we are like Jesus. 
In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, not completed. doesn't mean you're not loved. It means you haven't gotten hold of that. You haven't grasped that enough to realize that Daddy actually loves you. So if Daddy disciplines you, it's because He loves you, and He meant it when He said it hurts me more than it hurts you. Right? That doesn't mean it's not hard. It means that Daddy is good. Verse 19, we love. In other words, we love others. Because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus said, if you aren't willing to forgive others, then you have no part of the forgiveness of God. You don't understand it. You haven't taken hold of it. You haven't tasted of His grace. Or you would reflect that grace to others. Christ-like love is the primary evidence of rebirth in Christ. Christ-like love is the primary evidence of rebirth in Christ. If, you're, if you belong to God, you're going to love like Him. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, My command is to love one another. By this loving one another aspect, everyone's going to know you're my disciple. He didn't say by your good theology. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have good theology. He didn't say by your church attendance. We are supposed to gather together, and we should want that. He didn't say by your moral lives. Of course, the fruit of the Spirit developing in us is going to produce moral lives. But the primary identifying characteristic, the primary evidence of rebirth in Christ is that we love like Christ. We need to be born again in Him. We need to realize and receive the precious, perfect love God offers to us in the gospel. When that happens, understand this. Christ-like love is a supernatural work of God in us. It's a supernatural work of God in us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 lists this fruit of the Spirit. It's not intended to be an exhaustive list, but what it does do is say these characteristics, when the Spirit is in you, like sap in a tree, it's going to bear fruit. When the Spirit is in you, the Spirit's going to produce from you, in your life, particular kinds of fruit. And the first on the list, guess what it is? It's love. Huh. It's like Jesus knew what He's talking about. By this love, Produced in you by the work of my Holy Spirit in your life, everybody's going to know you belong to me. Everybody's going to know you follow me. Everybody's going to know you're my disciple. Christ-like love is a supernatural work of God in us. It's not our effort, but the Spirit working in us. And yet, while it's the Spirit working in us, there is action that goes along with it. Christ-like love is both action and affection. Christ-like love is both Action and affection. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 13. You've seen it before. Every time you've gone to a wedding, hopefully the preacher put it in context for you. 
This is not a wedding passage. This is a church passage. This is how all believers are called to love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, the reason we use it for for, uh, this idea of weddings is this action and affection combination is a good foundation for a lifelong marriage. But it's an even better foundation for a church. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look at verses 4 to 8, or at least the, the first part of 8. Paul describes for a quarreling, jealous, sin-riddled congregation the most excellent way, how to live together in Christ. And he says, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You'll notice in those three verses, there's not a whole lot of emotional feelings. It's not talking about being in love. It's not, you know, you should like everybody in church. This is a choice. Sometimes when we talk about agape love, we describe it as unconditional love. And and that's true, but... I kind of push back against that because I think it gives us a picture of a lazy love. Love that loves just because it's in love with love. And it's so, yeah, it's okay. So God loves everybody and it's all good so he doesn't have any rules and all that. Come on, man. That's not what we're talking about. I think it's better described as a volitional love. It's an act of the will. Every part of these things is a choice, an expression of character. These are character qualities. It's love not based on the lovability of the beloved. Follow me? It's not based on the lovability of the beloved. It's not that you're so lovable. It's based on the loving character of the lover. God loves us because God is love. It's a giving, sacrificing love. This is why the real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us love through his to give us life through his death. This is the same kind of love, this agape type of love is what Joseph showed when he found out his fiance Mary was pregnant with a baby that wasn't his. Now, let your mind go into that for a minute. Think of how you might feel in that situation. He couldn't begin a marriage with a foundation of unfaithfulness, but he cared too much about her to just submit, subject her to scorn and disgrace. So we look for a way to handle it quietly in order to spare her that disgrace, to protect her even then. And when the angel said, hey, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, that's what he did. He took her in and he loved her. There's action and also affection. When we invest in someone's life, when you actually do the acts, when you're lifting someone up before the throne of God, and you care about their lives, there is an affection that goes along with that, that accompanies the action. Joseph, remembering the love of God in his own life, felt a deep abiding love for Mary, despite what he thought to be her betrayal. He reflected that love by seeking to act in Mary's best interest, rather than just responding to his own natural instincts. Christ-like love is both action and affection. Notice this also. Christ-like love means loving like Christ. It means loving like Christ. 
When Jesus said in John 13 that you should love one another, he went on to say, as I have loved you. You should love one another in the same way that Jesus loves. How does Jesus love? Sacrifice. He put our need for salvation ahead of his comfort. He didn't need us. We needed him. He describes this through Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, having built this idea, this foundation of what it means to be in Christ in the first three chapters, the next three chapters of Ephesians, Paul tells us what it looks like to walk in Christ. And in Ephesians 5, he starts to get into some specifics. Be imitators of God by these things. Submit to one another, all y'all, out of reverence for Christ. Now, in a marriage relationship, it looks like this. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. You're playing a role here. It's like, it's like you're putting on a play before the, the world so that they can see a picture of God's relationship to His people. And He gives a longer exhortation to the husbands than to the wives because He says, look, if you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, then you need to do what Christ did. You need to lay your life down for her. You need to be willing to give yourself up to serve, to sacrifice. That's the love of Christ. If we're going to love like Christ, we have to do the things that Christ did, that Christ does. Christ-like love means loving like Christ. I hope that doesn't seem too obvious to you so that you're like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. That's really what we're talking about. We have to actually look at how Jesus loved and then let that kind of love be manifest by the Spirit working in us in our lives so that my needs no longer matter as much as yours by my own choice. But what if you're a jerk? It doesn't matter. I'm a jerk and Jesus died for me. I have a friend who says we all stink the same without the blood of Christ. Edited version. That's the reality. Every single one of us dead in our sins. God reached in and said, this one's mine. This one gets a new heart. A soft heart. Ready to receive. That's your Christmas present for eternity. Let's wrap this thing up. The real love of Christmas is God sending Jesus Christ to give us life through His death. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's the love that's worth celebrating. As this season of love reaches its climax and comes to an end, the good news of God's faithful, enduring, volitional, undeserved love demonstrated to us in Christ does not end. Let me say that again because I want want to make sure that you get it. As the season of love reaches its climax, as it inevitably does, and comes to an end, as it inevitably does, the good news of God's faithful, enduring, volitional, undeserved love demonstrated to us in Christ does not end. Ever. It cannot fail. For it is the very nature of God Himself. 
my prayer for you, for each of us, as we go from here today, is that we would realize, receive, remember, and reflect that love from God, demonstrated in Christ, not just now, but every day of our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we close out our service today, I pray that the songs that we have sung and will sing together would linger on our lips. They would would just stay in our minds and hearts throughout this day and into the week. More than melodies, Lord, that the melodies would remind us, would carry through our beings the truth of your great, volitional, enduring love that that reaches to the heavens and stretches to the skies, that rolls out from us, from you toward us, in a vastness that surpasses, surpasses that of the ocean itself. Lord, help us to let go of ourselves, to let go of our stubborn pride, to receive the one gift that we need most, the gift of salvation offered freely to us, but at great unspeakable cost to you, the cost of your own son. Father, thank you for the knowledge that you showed your love among us by sending your one and only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Be glorified now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we wrap this up with a hymn, as we normally do, we, we normally close with a song. I want to do something a little different today than normal. Normally, we would choose a song that is a, a challenge or a declaration of resolution in our own hearts and minds. Today, uh, I want us to end with a song of worship. That's kind of unusual, maybe just a little you know, insight into, into how the sausage is made here. But as, as we do this, we're going to close with a song that we would normally have toward the beginning of the service in bookending our service today with worship. Because the love that God has demonstrated to us in His Son is so great that I want us to take this in and as we walk away from this place to be fully contemplating how worthy our God is of our praise. That we ought to lift our voice to Him. We ought to lift our hands to Him. We ought to surrender our lives to Him. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing together about this precious, enduring, amazing love of God. Let's stand together.